In theory, the United Nations and other international organizations express the will of something called the international community, while enforcing something called the liberal international rules-based order. In practice, the UN and other international organizations now pursue rather different agendas. John Bolton served as national security advisor to President Trump, as U.S. ambassador to the UN under President George W. Bush, and in senior positions under Presidents Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. He has long been concerned about the direction the UN and international organizations are drifting or being pushed, and what such transformations pretend for the United States and other free nations. Richard Goldberg is a former director on the National Security Council. He also served as foreign policy advisor in both the House and Senate. He is now a senior advisor at FDD. I'm grateful to both for being with us today to discuss what's become of the modern experiment in internationalism. I'm grateful to you, too, for joining us here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. So, John, this is an issue you've written about, you've spoken about, you've addressed from various posts in the government for years. I, I probably learned about it a lot from not least from, I remember a Federalist speech you gave a few years ago, which really caught my attention. And what precipitates today's conversation was a news item that caught my attention earlier in in November. It reported that more than 70 nations, including several NATO allies, have taken the side of the International Criminal Court, the ICC, against the U.S. And, And by way of just brief background, let me say, we'll expand on this. The ICC was set up by a treaty the U.S. has never ratified the treaty. The U.S. doesn't accept that Americans are subject to its jurisdiction. And the ICC doesn't give a fig. It's investigating war crimes allegedly committed by Americans fighting the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Uh, and the Trump administration has protested and imposed sanctions on the ICC officials. <laughs> John, talk about what these nations are doing to us when we defend them. Well, you know, this is... a. Uh part of a catechism that you hear from uh, people who have drunk the Kool-Aid about the ICC and about uh, institutions like it. Uh, And it's a it's a complicated subject. But but basically, to me, it's a it's a it's a matter of democratic theory. You know, are we competent in the United States to rule ourselves and judge our own people? Or do we need an international court to tell us how to be on our P's and Q's? I think the answer is pretty clear from the question. Uh, but the, the International Criminal Court is, uh, is, is probably the most visible manifestation uh, of what's wrong with much of the UN system. And the UN system is a sprawling uh, universe of diverse uh, agencies and, and funds and activities. Uh, to me, the ICC is the 
most offensive. Uh, and it's not just the ICC itself. It's really the institution of the prosecutor uh, mm. that has such enormous discretion. I, I have written before the proudest day of all my time in government service was when I unsigned the Rome statute creating the ICC uh, back in the George W. Bush administration. The, the theory is that this prosecutor in this court will judge the actions of citizens uh, in this case of the United States, that, as you rightly said, are not not a state party uh, to this. They purport to exercise jurisdiction over us and our people. And that is fundamentally unacceptable. Uh, if a country wants to put itself under the jurisdiction of an international court, it, it's certainly free to do so. It's not what I would recommend for the United States ever. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why uh, in the Trump administration, we made it very clear that we don't accept the court. We won't cooperate with the court. In fact, we will defend ourselves uh, vigorously if the court tries to come after American citizens. Uh, I expect to see the Biden administration reverse most of that. I think one thing they will not reverse are the bilateral agreements that we put together in the Bush administration, so-called Article 98 agreements, that over 100 countries have agreed to that if the ICC tries to get custody of an American, they will return that American to the U.S. rather than hand him over uh, to the ICC in The Hague. So we've got those protections, but Biden will pursue a very, very different approach on the ICC. Just two quick follow-ups. One, I'm curious, have all NATO members signed such bilateral agreements? No, actually, very few have, because the European Union, almost 20 years ago now, they have drunk the Kool-Aid. Uh, none of the European Union members would sign an Article 98 agreement. Uh, Romania was actually the first country to sign, and they were browbeaten by the EU into, into reneging on it. Right. And the other thing is, I, I mentioned that that speech you made to the Federalist Society, I believe, in 2018. And, and this is important. You called the ICC a threat, in fact, the I think the most proximate threat to American sovereignty. I think the listeners, I think most people understand what sovereignty means. You, I, if I, I want to just elaborate for a second, you're suggesting that the ICC and some of our allies are insisting America surrender some of its sovereignty. Yeah. Well, some of our allies, of course, uh, in NATO are also members of the European Union, and it's fundamental to the European Union's construction that member states cede, they call it competence, but they mean sovereignty in areas like trade and regulation uh, to the European Commission in Brussels. So Europeans have gotten used to ceding their sovereignty, and they're very happy to cede a little of ours while we're while they're at it. Uh, I don't I don't think Americans are willing to do that. Uh, I think that uh, sovereignty for the United States is very clear. It's embodied in the words, we the people. We are sovereign. And uh, I think most of we, the people, don't think we have an awful lot of control over our own government in Washington. And we're not eager to cede even more power to something distant and, and less susceptible to democratic control. Rich, um, you've thought about this a lot, I know, not least here at FDD. Um, and I mentioned that since we've never ratified this treaty, we're not unsubject to its jurisdiction, even though we're, there are those in the, in the so-called international community who are trying to force it to be. But it's also true, I believe, that under the ICC's own rules, uh, it is only meant to be a court of last resort. It's not meant to interfere 
in a country that has a credible judicial system. So in essence, the ICC is saying, you know what? The U.S. does not have a credible judicial system, no? Well, that's exactly right. For the United States, for Israel, for others, where you see this lawfare from our adversaries uh, being carried out through the ICC mechanisms, through the uh, prosecutor, uh, it is true that the United States and Israel and other like-minded nations have a court system, have rule of law, have the ability to do their own investigations. Obviously, within the United States military, we take these things seriously. If we suspect any of our troops have conducted misconduct, have violated the UCMJ, we carry out investigations, we put them on trial, and we hold our people accountable. They do the same thing in Israel and, and other like-minded democracies. And so in the end, this is obviously uh, a corrupted organization that is looking to castigate the U.S., castigate Israel, use lawfare tactic against us. And that's why I think that uh, the ambassador is absolutely right. We'll see a very different approach uh, from the Biden administration, uh, probably withdrawing the executive order on sanctions, uh, not threatening the ICC prosecutor, others involved in investigations of Americans or Israelis with U.S. sanctions. But at the same time in the Congress, especially in the Senate, you're going to see bipartisan pushback on doing anything more than that, uh, because you have military groups out there that are urging bipartisan opposition to the ICC investigation. And I think this is a very politically difficult uh, issue for the Biden administration to navigate. They want to make nice with Europe, uh, but they can't uh, turn their back on the American people and more importantly, the American troops. One more question on the ICC before I move on. And that is, it's been in existence for almost a couple of decades. Rich, what has it accomplished? Well, it's a, it's a celebration of being able to hold people accountable, have investigations, uh, make other nations feel like they are investigating war crimes, crimes against humanity. Uh, the, the, the concept, uh, the idealistic concept was rather than having to establish all these ad hoc tribunals, there would be this one place where you could go to have investigations and hold people accountable. Uh, but the truth is, is that uh, historically, and Ambassador Bolton you know, can add on uh, far more than I can, I really look at the actual tribunals that the United States has led to help establish, to hold dictators who have actually committed atrocities accountable, far more successful than anything the ICC has accomplished. Yeah, John, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at here is that it's, it's got thousands of employees now. It's spent billions of dollars. And um, the Chinese for putting Uyghurs in concentration camps are not being put on trial, as far as I know. Uh, Venezuela, Maduro is not. It, it's not. It, I can't think of any great successes. I think it's had very few convictions, mostly some African dictators, probably a good thing, but but nothing much. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair statement. In fact, in many African countries, this is this was very interesting uh, during the Obama administration. The the mood was spreading that this was a European court for Africans. Hmm. In other words, the Europeans, everybody knows where the impetus for the ICC came from, and uh, its early record was heavily invested in in looking at. Uh, alleged crimes in Africa. So the colonial powers are once again judging the the states in Africa, and a number of them actually tried to withdraw. So th this this battle will, uh, will will continue. There's there's no doubt about it. I mean, th to me, the the issue I think that uh, that that we should focus on is uh, how to empower countries where 
gross abuses of human rights have taken place, and and it certainly happens all around the world. And the the way to do that, I think, is to have these countries take responsibility for the horrific acts that were committed in their name and by perhaps by their leaders. You don't enhance political maturity or the acceptance of responsibility by taking it away from people and by putting it in a court in The Hague. It's it's hard. Uh, uh, the, the, the countries of Eastern Europe are a good example. It's hard to reconcile themselves with what was done under communism in their name. And they've taken different ways to do it. They've had uh, truth and Reconciliation Commission. Some, some have followed the route of prosecution. It, it's been a difficult question all around the world. South Africa is a good example in the post-apartheid period where the government looked at a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You could have imagined a Nelson Mandela government prosecuting thousands of people from the white regime that imposed apartheid. But he saw that that was not the best way to proceed for South Africa. And I, I think you have to look country by country. But I think what we, what our, our job as Americans is to encourage the, the people of these countries themselves to, to, to bear up and take responsibility. It, it can take a lot of different forms, but don't take responsibility away from them. I'm going to, you know, if you want to come back to this, do, but because I want to kind of march through the international institutions, I'll move on to the uh, to the UN General Assembly. Uh, recently had an, a session, and the outgoing president of the UN General Assembly, Unga, sometimes called Tijani Mohammed Bande, he called the UN the, the UN General Assembly the Parliament of Humanity. John, I. <laughs> Was such a role ever envisioned, and is there any good reason that it should be? Well, you know, uh, it is said that Harry Truman carried around the Tennyson poem where he talked about the Parliament of Man because he envisioned the UN uh, actually being the Parliament of Man. Now, I think Truman, Dean Acheson, and other pretty hard-headed people disabused themselves of that uh, fantasy pretty quickly. Uh, uh, no, no uh, organization where you have this one nation, one vote concept is, is ever going to be uh, totally serious. And I think uh, it really the, the General Assembly highlights uh, the general breakdown of the political institutions of the UN system. The, the parts of the UN that can and do good work are tend to be the specialized agencies, and they tend to be the agencies funded by voluntary contributions, although I can't even say that as a universal principle. But the General Assembly, by and large, is a waste of time. Okay. And we're going to come back to specialized agencies in a little while. I don't know, if Rich, you want to add anything on, on UNGA? No, I think the ambassador characterized it exactly right. We, we know the record of the UN General Assembly spending an overwhelming amount of its time criticizing uh, one country, that being Israel. Uh, and not actually spending its time on the world's problems according to its mandate. One of the things that we unfortunately have a problem with, and, and maybe this could shift you know, with the Abraham Accords and the continuing uh, shifting of block politics, uh, if we can influence that in the years to come, uh, are things that require a UN General Assembly vote to change a mandate of. Uh, and I think of institutions like the Palestinian Refugee Organization, UNRWA, uh, which has uh, come under enormous criticism for many years, uh, it would take a General Assembly vote uh, to change its mandate, to wind it down, uh, to do the kinds of things that we need to do uh, to allow Palestinians to have a way out of just uh, statelessness and constant refugeehood. Uh, there are other 
uh, mandates like that out there. Uh, if we can find a way to build the votes in the General Assembly, I'm skeptical that could ever happen. Uh, but that would be the one uh, you know, way focusing our efforts in the future to try to at least block votes uh, from going forward, block budgets from being passed, uh, if that would be possible. So the UN General Assembly is one of the key organizations at the UN. The other, of course, the more powerful one is the Security Council. Uh, unlike the General Assembly, it can make international law, but people should understand that every resolution it passes it does not become international law. Plenty of groups assert otherwise, but it's that's just not true. But at this point, two of the veto-wielding permanent members are Russia and China, uh, which uh, do not wish the United States or other free nations well. Um, I, I always cringe when I see people talk about the UN Security Council as uh, as an institution that we for which we should have great respect and its decisions or resolutions and opinions um, we, we should abide by. Rich has made some very good points on the General Assembly. There's a lot to fix, uh, you know, and that's that's worth uh, spending some time on. The, the Security Council, I, I would say when I was uh, uh, U.S. ambassador to the U.N., I probably spent 80 to 90 percent of my time on Security Council uh, matters because they did touch on important U.S. interests uh, around the world. Uh, and and if you recall back in the uh, in the early 90s as as the uh, soviet union collapsed uh, international communism broke apart uh, the us got uh, authorization to use force against saddam hussein's invasion of uh, kuwait uh, uh, for the first time since the Korean War, the UN Security Council authorized the use of force. People said we've broken through the Cold War gridlock. Uh, there's a new potential for the UN Security Council. People were actually excited about it. Uh, that collapsed fairly quickly, and we got into a different kind of post-Cold War gridlock. Uh, and ironically, we're still stuck with the same configuration of Generally speaking, generally speaking, the U.S., Britain, and France among the five permanent powers on one side, Russia and China on the other. Now, that's an oversimplification to be sure, but it sure looks a lot like the Cold War, uh, good, good enough for government work. Uh, I mean, I viewed my main job uh, on the Security Council as making sure that important U.S. interests weren't compromised. We protected uh, friends who were under stress like Israel, and that was that was kind of a constant uh, preoccupation. Uh, there are occasions when the council can do some good work, but they're few and far between. And until and unless Russia and China fundamentally change their worldview, I don't see that uh, changing at all. Let's go to, to the what I consider the worst of the worst, and that would be the UN Human Rights Council which is meant to be the main intergovernmental body for human rights in the UN system. It would be one thing if you could say, well, the UN Human Rights Council isn't very effective, but it's much worse than that. It's become a club for the world's worst human rights violators who are consistently elected as members. Its, its membership today includes China, Russia, Cuba, Venezuela, and Pakistan. And just days before we're recording this, the U.S. record on human rights was reviewed at the U.N. Human Rights Council by Cuba, Belarus, North Korea, Syria, Iran, and China, among others. It can be said because of this that the international community believes that America's human rights record is one of the worst in the world, right? Why not? That's essentially the message 
being delivered. You may not believe it. I may not believe it. Rich may not believe it. But probably people around the world hear that. Yeah. Well, look, everything you've just said about the Human Rights Council could have been said about its predecessor body, the Human Rights Conference, and was. was. And by by 2005, 2006, everybody said this thing's got to be reformed. So we went through this uh, huge uh, reform effort and produced the UN Human Rights Council, which uh, I was very happy to be instructed by President Bush to vote against in, in 2006 because it didn't change anything. Fundamentally, there were cosmetic changes, but this this to me was the the final proof that and I'd struggled for UN reform for a long time. We weren't getting anywhere uh, with the approach we were taking. And it was entirely predictable that the Human Rights Council would soon become the exact duplicate of its predecessor. And uh, the Obama administration actually joined the council under the the tired old rubric that we'll make it better because we'll be participating in it hasn't had any effect at all. Uh, and we're really right back where we started from. It, it's a tragedy. This is something I know FDD cares an awful lot about. And the, the Human Rights Council is a mockery of human rights. You know, I, I'll scroll down memory lane. I remember when that transition took place and various groups came in to visit me and others at FDD to make the case that this was a significant reform and that the Human Rights Council would be significantly better than its predecessor. And I listened and I nodded and I said, I hope so. And it didn't take long before I was disabused of that uh, notion. By the way, Rich, um, let me mention also this, that yeah, Russia, Iran, Venezuela criticized the US at this this human rights uh, meeting they had, but America's friends also took us to task. This from Reuters. France called on U.S. authorities to halt executions at the federal level, close Guantanamo Bay Detention Center, and guarantee women and girls access to their rights and sexual and reproductive health. Britain called for ensuring access to comprehensive sexual and reproductive health services. These are our friends. One thing that that I was particularly stunned by was a visit uh, to Vienna last year. Uh, and I sat in on, on one of the meetings of the International Atomic Energy Agency, and I thought, okay, we're going to be discussing some serious issues here. I, I see the representatives of our allies from Europe over there. I, I see Iran over there. I see some other uh, not-so-nice nations. We're going to hear speeches on one side that sound like the U.S. ambassador's speech, or we're going to hear some other crazy speeches from the Russians and the Iranians. And sure enough, I couldn't make heads or tail of who was actually our, our adversaries and who were our allies in the room. And unfortunately, that happens, I think, at a lot of bodies at the U.N. where we don't uh, raise the issue of high enough profile uh, government to government bilaterally to say this this is unacceptable. We're not going to tolerate uh, this sort of disconnection from capital at some of these organizations to give speeches that, that criticize us. Now, on the Human Rights Council itself, you know, the structure, the governance, the election process is fundamentally broken. It's fundamentally flawed. You are always going to have human rights abusers elected to the council sitting in judgment of what is a human rights abuse. Uh, and that is a mockery to the uh, you know Universal Declaration of Human Rights, fundamentally. Now, at the same time, while it's true what Ambassador Bolton said, just going back in doesn't make any sense. The Obama administration proved that just participating doesn't change the outcome. And so I don't know why the Biden administration would think it will under under their reign. Uh, At the same time, when we leave, we can't just imagine that it has gone away. We have to be in a constant political uh, warfare struggle to delegitimize the council, in my view. 
uh, and to say we need a different forum and bring allies to a different forum to say, if you're a free nation, you know, here are the standards by which we judge human rights. Here are the, the standards we judge democracy, free peoples. We will not be subjected to Chinese rants on what democracy and human rights should look like when they're rounding up uh, Uyghurs left and right into concentration camps. John, do you, and Rich, either of you, you both are fairly familiar with who Biden will have advising him. We don't know exactly who will get what positions. Will there be anybody among those advisors who will say, you know what, let's not go back into the UN Human Rights Council. It's, 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 it's a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. Will anybody be saying that to him? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I can hope, but we can all hope that they will. But I, I think uh, in order to uh, appease the Europeans to show they're multilateral uh, at heart, uh, I, th- I think they're almost certain to go back in. And, uh, you know, it, it will it will probably uh, they'll give us six months grace period so that uh, we, we can't uh, round on them too quickly. They'll just spend more time criticizing Israel. Let's move on to the World Health Organization. Rich, I, I think it's clear that the that the WHO failed to do its job in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and I think a primary reason is that it's headed by Tidro Adhanam, uh, an Ethiopian who I think it's pretty obvious ha- is and has been very much in the pocket of China's, China's rulers. Now, the U.S. has supported the WHO contributing 10 times as much as China, but China has found ways to influence the people there. And by the way, most recently, you've got Who's Inquiry into the Origins of the Pandemic, uh, about to be led by Helen Clark, a former prime minister of New Zealand. According to Hillel Neuer, who heads UN Watch in Geneva, which does a very good job of keeping tabs on um, what's going on in these UN organizations. He's called on her to resign because she has close ties evidently to the Chinese government and she has already praised whose response before the investigation. John, you're you're shaking your head, so you, you comment on it first. Well, look, it's uh, I agree with everything you've said. It, it's gonna be a whitewash. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the Trump administration withdrew from WHO, and uh, I, I don't disagree with that, although, frankly, if Biden goes back in, it's not going to change change much. It's just going to be as bad as it was before. But WHO really was a centerpiece of, of showing to me how you can make change at the UN. In 1989, the PLO tried to gain membership as a state because, after all, we all know that the Palestinians already are a state. Uh, Bush 41 administration, and uh, I was glad to be a part of it, stopped that cold, stopped the PLO from joining a number of other UN organizations. And how did we do it? We we were able to stop that when uh, Jim Baker and George W. Bush basically threatened to cut off the U.S. contribution to WHO, which at that time was 25 percent of the budget if the PLO were admitted. And everybody said, oh, my God, they must be serious about this. And it demonstrated to me, if you want to get people's attention at the WHO or any piece of the UN just threatened to pull the US share out. Ronald Reagan really already showed that when he withdrew from UNESCO. Uh, I don't think the Biden administration will play hardball like that, but that's the way if you really want reform, uh, threaten to pull out the US money or threaten to go to a system of voluntary contributions rather than the tax we now pay, which is what assessed contributions are. It's a very controversial position, but the fact is when when people don't listen to the U.S., the way to get them to listen is to speak with dollars. 
And, and, and that's something I want to come back to in a little bit, but just to finish up on the who, um, this uh, Helen Clark, uh, who's supposed to be in charge of this investigation, according to Hillel Neuer, she has a close relationship with a UN goodwill ambassador by the name of James Chow. And Chow was subject uh, of a complaint to the WHO filed by 100 non-governmental organizations claiming that he has, quote, systematically abused his UN position to whitewash Beijing's role in the virus outbreak. It's just astonishing to me that somebody like that becomes a UN goodwill ambassador. And by the way, there are multiple examples of people becoming goodwill ambassadors for whom we should not have any goodwill whatsoever. Yeah, this is this is a good example of how China has played the system. And Helen Clark, honestly, is an example of a of a national politician who sort of when their political career at home is over, they ascend into U.N. heaven and have an unending stream of jobs that we're paying for. And she'll she will produce a whitewash. I have little doubt of that. And it's uh, uh, it's something that will be very difficult for WHO really to recover its reputation from. The World Trade Organization. John, you write, this is in your most recent book, that when China's rulers were invited into the WTO, the assumption was that they see it as in their interest to become good members of this organization, to play by the rules. And instead, of course, they immediately set about, I think you use the phrase, gaming the system, implementing mercantile practices within a free trade organization. And interesting, neither the U.S. nor any other members have seemed to know what to do about it and for a long time have not done much about it. Yeah. Well, I think in that sense, the trade war that Trump launched is is like hitting China right between the eyes with a two by four to finally get their attention that we're not going to put up with it anymore uh, and not put up with a large range of, of Chinese activities, stealing intellectual property, forced technology transfers. It, it's a subject for a podcast in and of itself. I'm a free trader. I don't make any bones about it. Uh, uh, but the, the the Chinese have gamed the WTO, and uh, it's time to put a stop to it. And I think uh, there are a lot of different ways to do it. But there's a bigger problem with the WTO as a as a whole, and that is that uh, that it envisions the possibility of adjudication of international trade disputes in a way that, in the minds of some, will build a body of law by each case after case, kind of a common law approach that will eventually uh, resolve a lot of uh, disputes through through this development. Now, Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. Trade Representative, finds that uh, a disturbing prospect, as do I. And Bob has put a stop to it by declining to agree to the appointment of any judges to the appellate tribunal in the WTO. If it's one thing for for governments to agree to arbitration, it's another thing to negotiate out disputes one by one. But this court system, which in effect is what it is in the WTO, uh, is another version of the ICC building international law in ways that are completely beyond the control of the United States Senate. They're never going to get the vote on any of these decisions. Uh, it's like the dangers of the law of the sea treaty, which has a tribunal that's also building uh, a record of, of case law. It's a, it sounds like a very small problem in a, in a little known context, uh, but unfortunately it has the danger to grow like a coral reef. And then by the time we realize it's a problem, uh, it'll be hard to overturn. So I think Lighthizer's right on track here. I think as soon as the Biden administration comes in, you're going to see a flood of judges in this 
tribunal, this appellate tribunal, will be back in uh, operation. Rich, you agree this is only going to get worse, not better, most likely, that uh, there'll be no significant attempt to reform it, and if there, even if there is, it'll fail? I think that's right. I think that we'll probably have a significantly different trade policy with, with the Biden administration. I think they're going to look to reset the relationship with China uh, in various ways, uh, some of which uh, we might find dis- disturbing. Uh, but in the WTO context, I would imagine as part of their multilateralism reversal of everything they see that uh, the Trump administration did wrong, they will release uh, the holds uh, on appointments of appellate judges, allow cases to be adjudicated. The one opportunity that I still think we have uh, because of the bipartisan support for doing more to counter China, whether in a strategic space, an economic space, or elsewhere, is building a coalition to hold China accountable to its WTO commitments. There is, in fact, uh, at least theoretically, a way to expel members of the WTO. You could build a coalition. I don't think the Biden administration will do that. I think they will be looking at ways to, uh, to decrease tensions with China uh, in different ways. And that would obviously uh, be viewed in Beijing uh, as a hostile act. Rich, you mentioned uh, that the UN has seen Israel as a convenient whipping boy, scapegoat for a lot of things. Um, One thing that's recently developed, 139 UN countries approved a resolution referring to the Temple Mount, which is the holiest site in the world for Jews, solely as an Islamic holy site. Uh, and again, here, uh, this was supported not just by, you know, Pakistan and Saudi Arabia or Iran. It was supported by France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, and the UK. You would think at this point, some of these countries would say, it's not in our interest to beat up on Israel and beat up on Jews uh, through the UN system. But that's not happening. So I would say two things. Uh, First, there is an institutionalization, really a career process for people to get jobs uh, upon layer and layer of bureaucracies that are dedicated to one mission, and that is castigating Israel. Various committees exist. uh, They duplicate each other in mission, but they have their own staffs, their own budgets. Uh, There are special committees. There are committees of the UN organ itself under the secretariat. They all hold these meetings. They all hold these votes. Even the WHO we just talked about, they paused a moment before we recorded this uh, broadcast to take a moment to once again condemn Israel at the WHO. Very odd place to do it, but there you have it. It just uh, comes up everywhere. Uh, The second piece uh, I would say here is that we have to acknowledge that the Arab countries that are making peace with Israel, uh, that are normalizing relations, we've seen Abraham Accords, incredible achievements, truly. Uh, And we hope that more and more countries will sign on. Those are not translating to their relations vis-a-vis Israel at the United Nations. At least they haven't thus far. Those countries, if you look at their voting record, are still voting against the state of Israel, are still helping sponsor conferences uh, and also resolutions to castigate Israel. I think the United States needs to intervene and say, wait a second, Uh, the whole point of the Abraham Accords is to foster mutual understanding and peace relations, not to undermine each other. That has to happen at the UN. If our European allies uh, see that even the Arab states are no longer willing to abide by some of these meetings or committees or votes, then they are going to be the ones who are isolated, uh, not us. Uh, And the last thing uh, I would say is, unfortunately, you know, the Europeans here are at the forefront 
of castigation of Israel. They always have been. Uh, you know, unfortunately, they cannot get their arms around this idea that the Palestinian issue is not the core issue of the Middle East. Uh, they don't like the fact that the Abraham Accords came about without a Palestinian state. We saw that in the UN Secretary General's address to the General Assembly, not one mention of the Abraham Accords. It's unbelievable. He speaks to the General Assembly at UNGA and doesn't even mention historic Middle East peace because it goes against everything that the UN and our European allies believe uh, that that peace can only be achieved once there's a Palestinian state. I think Rich has made some some very important points. You know, uh, when we repealed the Zionism is racism uh, resolution in uh, 1991, I, it was naive enough to think maybe we were we would make real progress from then on in the UN. But you know, we we like in this country in, in current times to talk about systemic problems. It's systemic this and systemic that. Let me tell you, there's systemic anti-Semitism at the UN. That's just the the fact. It's uh, in the Secretariat. It's in the structure of the member governments. Um, and uh, it's not it's not visible all the time. You have you have to understand the code words that people are speaking in. But I'm sad to say it is still there. And I do think uh, uh, Rich's point about the 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 potential benefit of the Abraham Accords is an important one. Uh, if you see the the old patterns from the Islamic states uh, being broken. Uh, I, I think there is a chance for progress there. So I think it's something the Biden administration should work on. I think we should work on. I want to run through some of the treaties and other agreements that uh, that the that a Biden administration might try to revive. Um, I'll mention some, but you can bring in others. One that occurs to me pretty obviously is the Paris Agreement on climate. Um, we know that uh, Vice President Biden would like to rejoin that. If he does, what will be the implications? Rich, you want to start? One of the flaws uh, of so many of these climate change pacts over, over decades is the idea that we treat uh, some of these developing nations, those that are no longer developing nations, uh, but we still call them as such, uh, like China, uh, differently than the United States, uh, where we would exempt India or others uh, from mandates uh, for years uh, while holding the United States to a different standard. Therefore, uh, having punitive effects on our economy, on our jobs, on our ability to create growth and help the U.S. Uh, economy uh, compared to uh, other countries in the world. It puts us at an uncompetitive disadvantage. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't take environmental protection seriously. That doesn't mean that we can't commit ourselves if we believe that this is a priority to take steps uh, for clean energy uh, here at home. Uh, it just means that we shouldn't be signing up uh, to unfair uh, treaties like the Paris Accords. The Biden administration obviously has pledged that they're going back in day one, and I expect they will. Yeah, John, uh, uh, China in particular, which which is not a, anymore a developing nation, although it is under the WTO, and it would be under, and it is under the Paris Agreement, right? Yeah. Well, one of my recommendations on WTO was that the United States declare itself a developing nation. <laughs> Uh, you know, why not? You don't you don't don't vote on it. And we are a developing nation. We're developing very well. Thank you very much. Anyway, on the look on the on the Paris Accord, uh, uh, it it was uh, it was one of the real triumphs of the Trump administration to withdraw from it. And it, and it basically put a hold on a lot of international uh, 
uh, uh, bad ideas for four years. Now, the Biden administration clearly has climate as one of its top priorities. So we're going to we're going to face this issue all around. Uh, you know, one way to characterize the Paris Agreement, though, is that you line up every signatory member's environmental plans and you put them together and you say, that's our objective. Each country will follow its own plan. So if you look at China's plan, which doesn't do much of anything until 2035, they can say they're in compliance with the Paris Accord. So the best thing you can say about this thing is that it's a it's an act of political symbolism and it doesn't really do anything. Uh, I think the hard question here is we are going to see efforts now to try and and uh, through through a number of agreements, uh, try and make some of these climate uh uh, theological climate uh, change theories uh, put into domestic law. And uh, so this is, this is going to be a struggle on a number of fronts. And by the way, China agreeing to do something years from now um, should be taken with a grain of salt, given that it's had a treaty, which is the, the fundamental basis of international, international law with Britain, to uh, maintain a two-system, two system, maintain Hong Kong's uh, autonomy uh, for 50 years and decided, you know what, we're not going to do that. We're going to we're going to eat and digest Hong Kong. Now, it'll be no different from Shanghai or any other city in this country as quickly as we can manage that. And the world will allow us to do that. They'll they'll mumble and grumble, but they'll let us do it. Yeah, they're they're taking advantage of the chaos of our uh, transition here. And uh, by the time the Biden administration comes in, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that the struggle on Hong Kong may be lost, but your point is correct. This shows you exactly how China honors its international commitments. Let's, let's move to arms control agreements because uh, you've written and talked and, and, and acted, um, particularly on arms control agreements that we have abided by strictly, thanks to all the lawyers uh, in the State Department and the Defense Department, in which the Russians have uh, have not abided by at all, and they've ex- and thought, well, that's a good status quo. Let's continue with that. And of course, China is not part of those agreements at all, which also presents a problem. So, um, my guess is you're concerned about the next administration, if it's a Biden administration, going back into these arms control agreements. Yeah, let, let's take New Start as a as a good example, uh, uh, and it goes fundamentally to the point of China. Uh, uh, and and I raised this with the Russians myself. I said, look, we're not in a bilateral nuclear world anymore. I mean, we haven't really been for a long time. But as China builds up, uh, it uh, unconstrained, it's going to come close to U.S. and Russian capabilities within within a fairly short number of years. So the the conceptual point is, if you're going to talk about strategic weapons control, let's bring China in. And the Russians said, well, we don't object to it. Of course, the Chinese did. They, they don't want to be bound by anything as they build up. I'm very afraid that the Biden administration is simply going to extend New Start for five years. I mean, if they want one helpful hint, if you're going to do that, just extend it for one year mm-hmm. and apply a little leverage to the Russians. But, but whatever they're going to do, I think they'll buy the argument we can't bring the Chinese in. And I think that misses a big point. Uh, to show to the rest of the world how how dangerous China is becoming. It it wants to be a nuclear weapons state in capability comparable uh, to the U.S. and Russia. And, uh, you know, if arms control means anything, and I'm not uh, it's the world's biggest proponent, but, you know, you have to treat the world seriously. And that means dealing with China now rather than 10 years from now when their uh, uh, deployable nuclear warhead capability might equal ours in Russia. I would just touch on two other uh, treaties, uh, major accomplishments uh, for the Trump administration, and it'll be interesting to see what the Biden administration does 
uh, obviously the withdrawal from both uh, the INF treaty and open skies treaties were major achievements uh, for the Trump administration, again, calling out this idea uh, that if we were going to have arms control agreements, they should serve U.S. interests. And whoever has signed up to that agreement needs to be held accountable. And if they are not uh, abiding by their own commitments, why on earth would we uh, abide by commitments uh, that put us at a strategic disadvantage? We found Russia to be in noncompliance with both treaties uh, for years. Uh, we tried to work to get them into compliance for years. They would not. And so the only recourse at that point is not to hold yourself accountable to the treaty anymore and to withdraw. What exactly the Biden administration will do uh, will probably be uh, interwound with uh, how they approach uh, Russia relations in general uh, and the New START treaty. Unfortunately, uh, what we see, and this is in very far left progressive circles that has become more and more mainstream uh, with some who will serve in a Biden administration, is this push for nuclear zero, is, is sort of this old unilateral disarmament uh, type feeling that is infused in some of the farther left uh, foreign policy views. And therefore, they're fine holding ourselves to uh, account to a treaty that Russia doesn't uh, perhaps uh, agree to, so long as it constrains our own nuclear arsenal to our own disadvantage, because their goal is unilateral disarmament uh, and nuclear zero. And so that is something that I think uh, will be very difficult uh, for the Biden administration to maneuver. These are issues that the Senate tracks very closely. Uh, another issue that you know could come up, uh, the uh, Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. It seems like every decade a Democratic president uh, uh, tries uh, to put it forward. We saw it a decade ago under the Obama administration, obviously uh, wholeheartedly rejected in 99 under the Clinton administration. Uh, we could see that resurrected as well in a push and so very important uh, for senators to understand the details uh, of these treaties, uh, if they are going to consider them, to understand what they would mean to U.S. nuclear posture and our own strategic defense going forward. Law of the Sea Treaty, uh, obviously something that the Obama administration did try to uh, push forward. Uh, it, it's, it's been a topic of discussion potentially in the Senate for years. I remember personally uh, working on it in the Senate uh, almost a decade ago. Um, what do you see as the prospect? Do you think a Biden administration will push that forward? And, and what, you know, explain a little bit about the threats of the treaty and, and uh, you know, why, why that's not good for U.S. sovereignty purposes. In, in part, uh, people have focused on the ownership of uh, un undersea minerals, and, and that has been one of the most controversial aspects of it. Uh, but uh, the U.S. Navy supports the codification of the customary international law in law in, in what we think of as law of the sea matters generally. That's a mistake, honestly, because it's codified and then assigned to a governing body that can make changes to it. Under customary international law, we dominate the law of the sea. And frankly, that's a good thing. Uh, the other hidden danger in the law of the sea is this tribunal that uh, that I think the environmentalists uh, see now with the frustration of international agreements on climate change, they see the law of the sea international tribunal as a way to make points. So this is another danger out there uh, that I think uh, we're going to need to spend a lot of time on to make sure it doesn't get through under a Biden administration. Let me um, broaden the aperture in the following way. There are two things going on here, I think, that we that have not gotten significant attention, and they kind of reinforce one another. One is the idea and the ideal of global government. 
globalism, uh, if you will, the idea that it's good for nations to surrender sovereignty to international, transnational, supranational institutions. A lot of our allies believe that. The other th idea is that there is something called the liberal international rules-based order. Uh, Bob Kagan wrote a book, you're familiar with him, a very good, thoughtful commentator. Um, he wrote a book saying, we really, it was called the, the Jungle Grows Back, I believe. And the idea was that we need to work to preserve this liberal international rules-based order. But like others, um, I'm not sure he dealt significantly, uh, sufficiently with the idea that various actors such as China, perhaps most notably China, is attempting successfully to hijack and subvert this liberal international rules-based order to impose its own rules and to make it illiberal. And with the help of you know, the UN Human Rights Council, say your idea of liberalism and ours are in conflict and who's to say which it, which it is. So in other words, what we're seeing is this whole structure built up after World War II uh, of, uh, of internationalism being taken over either by our enemies or being subverted by our friends. Am I putting too, too strong a, a point on this, uh, John? I, I don't think so. I think a lot of people in good-hearted fashion believe in this liberal uh, international rules-based order. But, you know, as you say, often it's not uh, liberal and it may be rules-based, but the content of the rules matters too. Uh, and I think before we subscribe to the idea that you can solve things through law uh, and that these are fundamentally legal questions that can, that can uh, supply the answers, most of these disputes are matters of power. That doesn't mean military force, but it does mean that uh, that uh, that international law is a pretty uh, thin parchment barrier to stopping uh, countries that are determined to have their way. I think the better way to look at the post-1945 world is that there are bits and pieces of order out there, largely supplied by the United States, frankly. They're not supplied by the United Nations system. They're not supplied by multilateral treaties. Uh, NATO is the, probably the greatest multilateral force for peace in the world and has been since it was uh, created after World War II. But the power of the United States has also been used to undergird the uh, liberal international uh, economic order. And, uh, and, and if, if we don't continue to pursue this along with our allies, you can bet that uh, nobody else will to our advantage. So to me, this is the argument that uh, the U.S. can't withdraw. We, we can't pretend that we're safe behind the oceans. We have interests worldwide. A lot of our friends have interests who depend on us. Uh, and, and we supply the energy. I wish others did a lot more. And frankly, they should do a lot more. Our friends in Europe, Japan and others. Uh, but but it's a it's a mistake to think that we will create a nice, peaceful international order anytime in the visible future. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's cost free for the United States to pull back because what what uh, uh, limited order there is will begin to dissolve and we will be the worst for it. We're not out there in the rest of the world because we're kind hearted and we're doing this on an elamazonary basis. We're out there to protect our own interest because if we don't protect them, nobody else will. Rich, are there, are there, are there remedies, are there treatments, are there options that any administration recognizing the problem uh, should be pursuing? Yeah, I think the ambassador said it very well. And I would just add the fallacy, those who criticize the United Nations and say that you're not a multilateralist, you don't respect the liberal rules and order 
the system that we created uh, over generations. Uh, if you say we shouldn't participate in a treaty, we shouldn't participate in this UN organization. The fallacy there is the United States on its own, through its own bilateral means and various multilateral means of the UN system on the humanitarian side, is the largest donor for good in the world, uh, the largest contributor to humanitarian missions, the largest contributor to global health uh, throughout the world. Uh, our free market uh, approach uh, to open markets, to bring economic growth, to bring education, to bring basic health requirements uh, throughout the world uh, is something that no one can contest. And so it is exactly right that we can't stop at, at our borders. We should be out there, we should do all these things. We should be proud that we do all these things. That is not the same as signing up to a treaty or signing up to an organization that is hijacked uh, by people who don't have our interests uh, at heart, uh, that are looking to undermine the U.S. Uh, long-term interests as a leader in the world. Uh, and when you look at China and others uh, undermining uh, various U.N. organizations, trying to take control of U.N. organizations, we need to understand on a case-by-case basis, is there an interest for the U.S. to participate uh, in the organization? Does that organization do something that we really can't do without? Uh, I think of the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, others uh, that come to mind. And then what is the structure and governance of that organization? Is it something where we can compete in elections, where we can support a candidate, that we can work with our allies to ensure that the leadership is not hijacked by China, uh, that our funding uh, can be tied to conditions along with our allies? Uh, If it's an organization like the Human Rights Council, none of those things apply. There's no reason to be there. We have no leverage. Uh, If it's an organization like one of the specialized agencies where we do have a voice in elections and we do have a voice with our budget, uh, we should exercise that influence because that is what matters. That's what U.S. leadership is about. John, last question and any final thoughts you have you, you might include in this. Vice President Biden has shown interest in the possibility of standing up in a sort of alternative organization, a League of Democracies or something like that. It could build on NATO. It could be separate from. Is that a possible option that that he should be, that you would encourage him to consider? Is there anything else that should be done to prevent the the, the trajectory we're going on, China and and some other bad actors taking over whatever international or order that exists? Well, I think it's interesting that Biden has even said he's interested in, in something like that, uh, although it's pretty hazy what, what he has uh, in mind. Uh, I've actually thought uh, that the suggestion of former Spanish Prime Minister Jose Maria Aznar is one that we should take up, which is to take no, uh, NATO and make it global. Admit Japan, Singapore, Australia, Israel, maybe some other countries, uh, because NATO is a league of democracy uh, uh, with with a somewhat questionable exception of Turkey at the at the moment. But But at least in theory, it could be. Uh, the, the problem with setting up a separate organization, frankly, is that our friends in Europe would not want to join it. They think the UN's just fine. Uh, God knows why. But but I think it would be very hard to persuade them to join something else. So maybe through the back door of NATO expansion, that that might be the way to do it. I just think fundamentally this all rests with the United States. It's not that we asked for this role. Uh, it's not that many people are comfortable with it. But again, our interests demand uh, a strong American presence overseas. I, I think our uh, economy and our society dis- depend on a strong U.S. international presence. And I think uh, a strong U.S. international presence is what guarantees our economy. 
Well, listen, this is a critical issue that I think is more critical than many people recognize. So thank you, John, for sharing your insights. Thank you, Rich, for the work I know you're doing on this uh, at FDD. And thanks to all of you who uh, have, I hope, listened and learned from, uh, from this conversation. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.